Well, hello and welcome to another Scott McKenna podcast. I appreciate you being here as always. Thanks for giving me your ears and your time to just listen to this, and I hope you find it valuable. I had the chance to sit down with Levi Allen of Left Coast Media, and if you don't know who Levi Allen is, I highly suggest you go in the show notes right now. You look at his YouTube channel, you subscribe, and you show him some love because he is an incredible filmmaker and just a guy that's always smiling in his vlogs. He just just seems like an awesome dude, and after a conversation with him, I can confirm that he is just an awesome dude. I think this conversation is going to be extremely valuable for you, whether you are a new filmmaker, whether you are an experienced filmmaker, whether you're someone that's been constantly contemplating the gh5 maybe you're someone that's been contemplating final cut pro you may say wow that's a lot of different things but that's the kind of stuff that we got into in this conversation we talked about his journey to filmmaking his journey to his company where he's at today we also had a deep discussion about the gh5 what makes the camera so incredible and also an awesome conversation about final cut pro and premiere which if you've been following any of my content for a while you know this is a highly debated and highly talked about topic in my vlogs but like many people he recently converted from premiere pro to final cut and he will tell you all his reasons why and it may help you to make that decision as well so let's just jump right into it thanks for being here here's my conversation with levi allen of left coast media well levi i appreciate you taking some time to be on the scott mckenna podcast today first off just want to say hello how are you doing today how is your weather out in beautiful canada yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. This is great. Uh, today I'm doing the best I've done in about eight days. I've been a little sick, which has been tough to get videos out, but uh, looking forward to this week for sure. Hopefully get some some progress made on some projects I'm excited about. Well, you're always doing a lot of projects. I recently saw on your YouTube channel your insane desk build that was beyond impressive, especially for a guy like me who has zero handyman skills whatsoever. So that in general looked like it took quite a while. What was the, kind of the real-time build of that yeah so i just saw a lot of time lapse so it always makes it look really fast yeah i love i love building things with my hands when i especially if i spent too much time behind a computer it's kind of my favorite way to procrastinate <laughs> just getting getting the hands busy building something and uh so that build particularly i was procrastinating an edit and i wanted to it was the video about the imac pro and i wanted yep. to have the imac pro on a better setup that didn't look super janky and i went out uh and I was trying to shoot some stuff, and I just didn't like it. And I was, I should rebuild the desk. And so I, in the morning, went and bought supplies. And by, by nighttime, I had a desk. So I spent a, I spent that's, a full day on it. That's impressive. The only way I'd have a desk by nighttime is if I found a found one I liked at a, at IKEA. <laughs> Handyman is not one of my specialties. Well, I do appreciate you taking some time to be on today and kind of I always like to at least start and in case anybody doesn't know who you are, which I hope a lot of people already follow your stuff. Um, you are an, an incredible filmmaker and someone that I followed for a while and really, really appreciate the content that you put out. And it's just always inspiring to see other filmmakers doing um, their stuff as well. So to start off, I'd just like to kind of hear a little bit about your journey, how you got started um, and then kind of where you're at today and tell people a little bit about who you are. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fun to reflect on what brought me to here right now. I I'm kind of a reflective person. I like analyzing previous events and a fun part about it is every time I try there's often different little things that come up every time I try to explain what brought me to here. So I'm kind of curious what I'll end up saying right now. <laughs> uh but I mean That's for, all part of the journey. Yeah. And I, I just love that for a lot of us that get into video work specifically, especially because it's become so accessible, we often have these other passions that kind of wove together, if it's music or if it's mm -hmm. photography or if it's, you know, all these different things, if it's passion for the outdoors, skateboarding, just these various different areas that people have passions that often video gets added to it as a way to communicate those things. And yep, it's true. And as I just like look back across, I, I mean, that maybe 10 or so years that I've been excited about video it's it's there's a lot of those things for me where video was just a natural addition to the things that I was curious about. I think I would define my journey more as as a as a maker crafts person more as more so than like an artist or a really creative person. I never really saw myself as being super artistic or things like that. Often I would look as my older brother was always the more artsy singer songwriter and I was more of the swinging hammers, cutting boards building bike jumps kind of guy. Oh, interesting. But like, I mean, for me, the video stuff was there right at the beginning. Just so fortunate to have, you know, a handy cam in the family and back even when I was like 
nine or 10 years old on the first rock and rock climbing trips I ever did. You know, the camera would come along and that was the first video that I ever remember making actually was a climbing trip I did when I was, I must've been 10 years old and uh, just took the camera along and got home and tried to make a video showcasing rock climbing. And it's pretty wild to think that uh, it took me several years later till I actually went, okay, I, I want to figure out if I can do this in a way that looks more cinematic or encapsulates a feeling that I want to leave people with or gives kind of that right. chills moment. That Deciding to want to do something like that didn't come till later, and that must have been when I was around 15 or 16. But uh, Do you still have that video, the rock climbing video that you made? You know, I don't. <laughs> And that is that's what you know, that's such a bummer because that's how I am too. I look back, I used to do the same thing, kind of filming everything I did back in the day when I was 18, 19, 20, and I have no clue where the footage is because because YouTube didn't really exist then. Yeah. And when it did, it wasn't like it is now, where now I have everything I've done since like 2015 easily accessible on Google Drive and hard drives. And it's like it was so much harder to get to keep footage back then. Yeah, I mean, that project was turned into a DVD at some point, but that DVD is long gone. And I always wonder about that, too. Like, I think about all the stuff that I'm putting online now, or or even I, I put a lot of stuff on, like, my own private YouTube channel for, like, home video stuff. And I always, like, somewhat get worried about it, because even though I know the internet's not going anywhere, I'm wondering if it's going to get to the day eventually that, like, that that's not the standard form either. Right. And then like if not that YouTube's shutting down anytime remotely soon, but like what if they change and and then all my stuff is I don't know, there's just, I always get worried with that kind of stuff too. <laughs> it might just be that I lost everything I previously had. That's a it's a rough thing to lose previous projects. I <laughs> I always try to just keep stuff on multiple drives and just hope for the best and Yeah, no for sure. So tell me a little bit about kind of where you're at today. Um, right. obviously there's lots that got you to where you're at. To me it seems like, you know, you have your YouTube presence which is is obviously kind of seems like my situation where it's kind of built around what you're doing in the video production world mm -hmm. so talk a little bit about kind of how that journey started and what left coast media is all about and and when you started that yeah i get so i guess for people that are not familiar with what i do uh with left coast primarily i make outdoor adventure films that's the big focus of i try to i try to make these original content films uh particularly micro documentaries, just like 10, 12 minute pieces that are just kind of whatever I get curious about. I've kind of used video as an excuse to ask people questions. I'm pretty intensely curious about a lot of different things. And over the years, I've wanted to be able to follow people around and ask what's driving them. And that's actually a really creepy thing to do unless you're making a video or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of given me an excuse to just ask people tons of questions and get try to get deep with it and try to ask, you know, what's motivating you here? What's scaring you here? And that's kind of what I try to make my films about right now. Just, I call it, you know, people pushing their comfort zone, just kind of on that edge of what they've done previously and showing them making the decisions that push them forward into whatever's next. And I'm just fascinated what motivates people to do that. And it's just really prominent in outdoor sports, especially ones that we are traditionally considered extreme. Be mm -hmm. just because, I mean, people naturally don't get into it to make an income out of it. They don't get into it um, for recognition. Oftentimes they get into it purely off an inner drive and that fascinates right. me. So those are the kind of films I try to make with Left Coast. And my whole goal in the past five years or so has been trying to figure out how do I get to a stage where I can make videos like that and not and not have to make them for the money and not have to make them for the right. thousands of people that are lining up to watch it. How can I just get to a, the dream was, well, in high school, I was thinking, man, if I could just become like a doctor or something like that, I could have the, the cash to just go make videos about whatever I wanted to make. I was like, and then you wouldn't have time to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. And then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to time to do it because I'd be a doctor. And so that's, that's the problem I've been trying to figure out. I've, I've had this desire to make projects that I'm curious about. And I've, and I've honestly just been on this kind of fumbling along journey of figuring out how do I, how do I get there sustainably uh, and just set up, set up my life in a way where I can focus on doing this for a good portion of my year. And that's what's, I mean, one of the best ways to start making money with video right away is making videos for businesses and things like that. And that's kind right. of, that's kind of what I got started in just making videos for people that wanted videos and 
then I'd buy the gear and use the gear on the weekends to go make things. Yeah, because I guess that's kind of the difficulty of, like you said, getting to a place where you're not worrying about the income from those those outdoor adventure type jobs because, like you said, a lot of the people that you're filming, it's not their job. So yeah. they're not necessarily looking to to get a video done. It's you more wanting to actually create it because it's something that you like learning about and having interest in. So I guess that makes it kind of difficult too because you're kind of you're trying to make these films that are passionate to you about people's passions, but their passions aren't necessarily what's making them the money either. Right. And I think yeah, we all kind of get to that point where we're thinking, how could I how could I make money elsewhere so that I can just film what I love and not for money? Cuz I know that's the hardest part about and you probably could speak on this mm-hmm. too is like when you when you get to a point where you know, you start out with video being just a passion and you want to film more and more and you want to film and you want to film and you want to film and you'll do it for anything because it's just fun. But then you eventually get to a point where it's like reality hits, you, you need to make money, you mm. now the job has turned into what was your passion and how do you how do you find the balance of I still love video, but now do I only pick up the camera when money's involved versus do I still want to pick up the camera when there's nothing for me to actually make money on? Yeah, and I, as a as a young as a younger guy in, in my teenage years, I made it a, made it a habit to try ask lots of questions from other people that were were already getting paid to do things that were that involved visuals or or crafts or music. Or I, I just love trying to figure out how people made their passions into systems that could generate income for them, but also create work they're proud of. I, I just loved asking that. And it was really discouraging from some people where they would just be like, oh, I haven't made something that I'm proud of in so long, or I've actually never made something <laughs> that I'm happy with, or man, you just have to take those projects because of the money. Or, And I, th- I think I started with a bit of the stubborn attitude of, I don't want to get into the process of making videos as a production company do it for five or 10 years and never have made something that I can point to and be like, that's why I make videos. I need, mm-hmm. I need to, at the start of all of this, I mean, cause I mean, there's that stage where video was kind of a side hobby thing where it's like, okay, I'll try, try to use it to make money every couple months or someone's got a paid gig and they need someone to make a video and I get, I get contacted and I make the video. And so it's like a side thing and, right. and it's happening over time. But there's that distinct point where I decided I want to pursue this as the thing that I do. I want to try on, how does that fit? I'm kind of like an all-in person. There's been a lot Mm -hmm. of interests that I have over my life, but I like like diving headfirst into them and seeing how does that feel when I commit to it wholly. If If I start calling myself a video maker and if I start saying, this is the thing I'm doing, how does that feel in my soul? Like, Am I happy with being that kind of person that does those things? And from the start, I, I did not want to be the person that five or 10 years down the road had not made something that I was proud of. I just would, I was just not going to be okay with that. Right from the start, I knew I have to set up this in a way where a pillar of what Left Coast is, is we just make because we're curious. I say we, but it's, it's really just me. But I have a vision for building something that has yeah. more people involved. But I just knew from the start, I don't want to be one of those people that that waits three to five years to to ever make anything of any length that was at least in a, I think at least an attempt to make something you're proud of. I think, I think that's the most devastating thing is people are, are, are unwilling to make the attempt and right. fail miserably is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to just like have an idea that you thought could be something and it just crashes and burns and doesn't work out. Right. It's like they're almost too afraid to, they're too afraid to actually take the risk that would probably create them what they ultimately really want. Yeah. That they end up kind of just staying in this, in this place of doing a ton of projects that just, they're safe. They're, they're, well, it's going to make me my money, but the next project is going to be that one that I want to really work hard on or that's going to be my true passion. So do you kind of feel like you're at you're at that spot now or are you kind of early in this transition of, yes, I'm going to make sure that I make projects that I'm passionate about? Like that's where you at in kind of that journey. Yeah, so from the start, I knew if, if I was going to pursue building Left Coast into a full-time thing, we've got to make passion projects a part of it from the beginning. And uh, and so Left Coast has kind of been a side side hustle of mine since about 2011, while I was doing various other things. 
And it wasn't until uh, the the winter of 2015 that I launched kind of my first debut film that was a completed project with Left Coast that I was kind of using as my announcement to be like, Left Coast is here as a production company that will make gorgeous outdoor films. How I kind of got to that point first was making sure if I got into this, I wouldn't have to starve the passion by using it to make monies in, in ways that I that would just starve out the passion, basically. Right. And a safety, so the the safety thing I did right off the top, because I wanted to jump into it kind of full on. I didn't want to, I don't recommend that other people do this specifically, but I wanted to just dive, dive head in. And I, I found a local company that's based out of Vancouver called Transposition Films. Two guys that I, I looked at their lives and some of the projects they were working on, they were a local company that had a red camera. So that seemed really cool. And I was like, man, they've they've got families. They're really nice guys. How are they pulling this off as a two-man team running a company? I would like to see what it looks like for them before I fully commit myself. And hey, they have the gear that I don't have. So if I go and work with them, I can use the tools that I daydream about, see if they actually make a difference in my work. And then hopefully in that period of time, I build up enough of an awareness to know these are the types of projects I want to work on. And these are the types of projects I don't. And so that's that's something that I recommend people pursue if they go, hey, I might like to do that for my job. Because the, the reality is for so many people, it's okay if video stays a hobby. Be- the realities right. of making videos for clients, there's so much that you're doing is not that's not what you daydream about when you think, oh, I want to make right. videos. Yeah, everyone starts video and they kind of see this big, huge film set and these guys with these, all these actors and this incredible lighting crew and they don't realize that like, no, it starts with you're at Jim Bob's local butcher shop and yeah. you're doing a talking head thing and trying to get B-roll of, of the meat that's hanging on the wall. Like it's just not the same, but you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like look at the companies that are doing what you want to do and if you're young and you want to learn and you want to help and grow, th- it is easier than people think to like just shadow companies and help them and assist and carry crap and just do stuff that that most people just don't want to do. But putting yourself in the situation where you can watch people actually do what you want to do versus just reading stuff in a book or learning stuff in a school, whatever it is, the best experience is like actually being with people that are doing it. Yeah. And a big, I mean, it's maybe you've experienced this as well. When you start putting stuff out on YouTube or you're, you're seeking to share with people, sometimes you, it's so, I'm so fortunate to get messages like this, but people being like, Hey, I'd love to come and follow you doing what you do. And man, I, mm-hmm. I don't ever want to sound ungrateful for that at all. Cause it's such a privilege to have people that are aware of some of the stuff I'm doing and want, and would consider it to be a privilege to, to be there as it's getting made but I have to say, it's so hard as someone who has lots of projects on on the go to to keep track of these people in my head that I know have sent me emails previous and right. remember to reach out at the right time when I actually do have a need. And that's where, I, like, I've got to say, it you if you care about it, you in a lot of ways, you have to find people that you can get in front of face-to-face and build the relationship somehow in person. Yes. Yep. I think, I think people have are capable of doing these amazing reaching out online and these cool circumstances happen. I've, I haven't had a personal experience like that with someone coming to be involved in what I'm doing or me going to someone else. And that's where this, Mm -hmm. so this company in Vancouver, I mean, I, I started seeing them around and across two years, every time I'd see them at a, if they were doing a production and I ran into them, I would go up and I'd introduce myself again, remind them my name. And, you know, I'd try to just networking, just be a familiar face. And then, when it came when it came go time and i was like okay i've got this summer i want to work with these guys how do i convince them to just let me be there as they're working right you've already built a relationship that they actually will listen to you yeah and but actually what i even did was one of them posted on facebook uh one of the guys ryan he's like he posted a hard drive that he had for sale and instead of me being like hey ryan can we schedule a coffee or something can i have some of your time type thing I, I literally just bought his time. I I, I bought <laughs> yeah. a, I was like, I'll buy your hard drive. And I showed up at their studio in downtown Vancouver for the first time. And I bought the hard drive from him. But I used that moment to, to earn some of his time to say, hey, look, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back next week. Like, I'll be here next week or next month. And I'll start helping immediately. 
And there's something really special about that face-to-face stuff. So I, I strongly, especially if you don't have any videos out there where you can show the type of work you can do, because maybe you right. haven't made work you're proud of yet, it's really tough to just send a message. That's, that's a really tough thing to do. And I, I just recommend do whatever you can. It's okay to ask for coffee. And a lot of people will probably say yes. But just understand, if you're aware of a production company that you'd like to work for, there's, there's probably 50 to 100 other teenagers out there that are yep. sending very similar messages. And even while working for, with this company, I would be working with them in the studio and some, some younger guys would come by and they would hang out for coffee at the studio and they would just be like kind of in awe in the moment. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't pitch that they could actually be helpful. Right, and, and I would feel so bad for them because I knew in their I knew in their head they're like, man, I'd love to work with these guys, but you have to show that you can offer something, and you gotta, yeah. And even so, these so these two guys, Ryan and Josh, I ended up borrowing a bunch of their gear and their edit bay to make my first film. So we ended up getting along great, and I helped them with some of their client projects. Trust was built, and part of what goes along with that is, I mean, they had a, they had a full whole suite of camera gear that, Hey, Levi, go, you, you can use this on the weekends or when we're not shooting projects. Uh, because I personally didn't have camera gear at the time that I could use to make (laughs) anything out of that I was proud of. And so I would use this camera gear on the weekends. Uh, and that's how I started shooting my first film. And after this whole process, I mean, that's obviously a bit of a long story, the whole making of the film thing, but I went on to host a premiere and all this stuff. And the two guys afterwards were like, you know, we've had five or so interns over the years and no one has made anything with the gear. <laughs> like no one's made any. And I just am so puzzled by that. Like what, what prevents people from, it's, it's shocking to me. Uh, <laughs> not that yeah, I'm trying to bash on other people. I think, I think too, so many people when they start, they immediately look at the best of the best in their mm-hmm. industry and they make something and they're just so they're so frustrated and dissatisfied with what they make because they're comparing themselves immediately in their first project to the best of the best, yep. which, which is just a crazy way of thinking. Like, you know, if, if, if I were to be able to look back at the first footage I shot, I know it would look awful, but I think because we live in this world where like you go on YouTube and you see all the best YouTubers and the best filmmakers and the best this and the best that this person gets discouraged when they have this tiny budget and barely one camera and they can't produce that image that they're seeing on YouTube, but they have to realize like, of course you're not going to do that yet. I always tell people as much as possible, like you need to compare your work to the last project you did. Yeah. The last project that you films, not the last project that your competition filled or your filmmaker that you look up to. Do not compare yourself to these people because it will get you frustrated. You've just got to get better each time you do it. And then you'll feel much better about yourself. But it is funny. I think people just get discouraged too fast and people just quit too early. And like this is, you know, talk to any person that's making films or feature films or even YouTubers like yourself. Like you didn't you didn't pick up a camera last week. Like that's just (laughs) not how it works. Yeah, there's a there's a few things that I was told and kind of stood out to me at the beginning that I, I didn't take fully to heart at first. But now I'm now on the other side of having made a couple hundred videos. I'm pretty passionate about trying to get other people to do and this whole concept of embracing limitations and putting constraints mm. on a project to actually just get things finished. There's, there's this term that uh, author Seth Godin uses is shipping. Like you just got to finish and complete a project and put it out into the world. And you got to do that a bunch mm-hmm. of times because each time, you know, you're closing that gap in between what you see in your head you could make then the actual process of trying to make that thing there's usually a pretty big difference with what you saw in your head and what yeah. you ended up with your footage. And instead of just letting that footage sit on a hard drive forever, man, edit that thing, finish it, like br- yep. make a finished video and then repeat and repeat. But it's, I mean, people just come up with, people are really great at excuses and mm-hmm. that term of, oh, just do the work. People go, oh yeah, whatever. The other concept I was told is, yeah, just use use the gear you have. And I, I came into filmmaking around the time of the DSLR revolution. And so we got these photo cameras that can make really beautiful cinematic images. And I spent so much time sitting on websites like No Film School, just reading reviews of cameras that were way beyond my budget that I had no business looking at. And I just <laughs> went, man, if only I could have those things. And meanwhile, yeah. I had this like $1,000 camera that I'd saved up my money to buy. And it was just sitting on my desk. 
and I needed to start using it. And, and when we fast forward to working with these guys that had a RED camera, this production company in Vancouver, I mean, in a lot of ways, that was like the dream. I had my hands on the dream camera that I grew up hearing about. Like, this is the RED camera. And RED cameras are incredible for what they can do. But when I started trying to make a film with it, I, it, it was honestly really difficult shooting a film solo with a RED camera. <laughs> yeah. Especially if it was just on the weekends. Like the thing took a little bit to power up. I needed a lot of batteries. It was really heavy. And, and so coming back to constraints, that summer I knew I needed to leave the summer with one project that was close to 15 minutes that, I, that had story in it. Because at that point, I'd been making videos for two or three years. I'd been making videos, some wedding videos, some client videos. Like I could make videos. But for me personally, I, I saw these documentaries I could make that were actually good. And I wanted to leave the summer with one thing that by my standards lived up to the expectations I had in my head. So I already set these limitations. This summer, I'm making something. And so I was on the hunt. And I found my subjects and I tested the idea in my head. And it's like, okay, no, those subjects aren't going to work. This documentary won't go through. And then I just kept looking for people. Okay, who could I make an interesting story about? And I found my subjects that were really cool outdoor athletes. And so I found them and I'm like, okay, these are the people I can make a video about. When are we going to make the video? Because do I just film it every day that I have free in the summer? Uh, well, that would be a very convoluted documentary. Like what's going to be the actual thing I film? And so I decided, okay, I'm going to take a week and we're just going to go film something. So it's going to be one week in one summer and I'm going to make a 15 minute thing. And those were the constraints I put on it. And I just <laughs> gathered up all the gear and I packed this, I packed this borrowed red camera, packed as many lenses as I could. And I also took a Panasonic GH4 with me uh, and uh, a Metabone speed booster and a few other lenses. And I hiked all this gear up a mountain and we spent about five days up in the mountains of Squamish, just shooting this project. And the funniest thing is, I was so pumped to have a RED camera there. And I felt like, yeah, like I'm finally shooting my, my project. And the, the RED camera ended up mainly for that film being used for interviews and a couple really cool slow-mo shots. And I used the GH4 for almost everything because I wasn't, I wasn't worried about running out of battery with it. I wasn't worried about uh -huh. running out of RED megs because I literally only had a couple RED megs to use with the RED camera. And I find it so ironic that I carried, oh man, so much. The, the RED, the kit, a kit of a RED camera is heavy. I did two trips up this mountain with so much gear. It's unbelievable. The, uh, and that trans, that, that's a perfect, um, perfect segue into kind of the next part of this discussion, which is about obviously the GH5, mm -hmm. but just this idea of just how incredible the gear we have available now is. Um, and yet no piece of gear is incredible without obviously some knowledge of it as well. Like this, it's, it's pretty important to understand the basics of cinematography and lighting and composition for any camera to be good mm -hmm. and i'm realizing more and more you know i've tried to buy the best cameras and the best this and the best that and i you, like you said you you had a red which is you know what everyone the dream I'm, camera I'm doing air quotes yeah what everyone dreams of and it still doesn't mean that it's necessarily like it's just not it's not nothing's perfect but what i want to kind of talk about is the gh5 you obviously i think i initially came across your content a while ago from something that had to do with cameras, I'm sure. And I've been following that journey now since, but you're, you're a guy like me that is, um, that seems to be in love with the GH fives for what they can do in just this tiny, tiny little body. And I have so many people that contact me about this camera and about this, the low light, this, and the, and what about this? And what about the micro four thirds and all this kind of stuff. And yet I constantly am just finding myself just blown away by this little camera, by how inexpensive the camera is and how amazing it, I think it is. And I kind of wanted to get your take, and I think that, you know, you can tell me what kind of what your gear kit is, but I've seen some in video. You know, what makes to you the GH5, we're getting all gear talk now, but yeah. I think this is an interesting conversation. What to you, why do you use the GH5? Like, what makes that camera so special? Yeah, so a big theme for me, whenever there's... Come, comes a project that I'm wanting to make is it oftentimes just goes, okay, what is available to me right now that I can use? That's been a, that's been a theme for me. So 
I, I spent a little bit there talking about the first film I worked on. That was called Untethered. And when I went to shoot this thing, I knew I needed another camera besides the red. And I had done some some free work for a buddy, and I knew he had a GH4, and I knew the GH4 could shoot gorgeous 4K images. At that time, it was, I think, the only 4K mirrorless camera that even existed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, I should borrow that camera in exchange for that free work I did. And that's like, I didn't even own a GH4. I was I just had done some free work for a buddy who said, <laughs> hey, man, I'll return the favor sometime. I was like, hey, can I cash in that favor and borrow your GH4 for a week? He said, sure. And so then I went and rented a Metabone Speed Booster and I was off to the races. And what stands out to me about a camera like this is, especially in documentary scenarios, when I had the red out, everyone was like, wow, you're making a movie. And if we were in a public setting, everyone was like, what are those guys doing over there? But the huge advantage that I noticed, especially in the contrast of using the red camera, which is far superior in a lot of respects for making <laughs> beautiful images. But when with the GH4, people just felt like I was just hanging out, making a, a family video. Yeah, you got like more of a natural reaction from people. Yeah. So I could, I could yeah. inconspicuously be filming people that became my friends just hanging out, doing the sport that they love. And they were a lot more candid with me when I'd have kind of just a little GH4 holding up against my face, talking with them. I'm recording them and I'm kind of capturing this moment, but it felt a lot less like I was shoving a camera in their face because it had this really small, compact setup. Yeah, And that, that for me was like, oh, okay. So there, there's not just a benefit in the, in the size because it's less weight. There's not just a benefit because the batteries, you can have lots of them. There's actually a, a real benefit when you're filming people to have a rig that you're shooting with that doesn't look like a super impressive rig. Which is crazy it's because true. my whole high school days were spent daydreaming about getting a map box <laughs> and putting a camera on rails because <laughs> yeah, then I'd yeah, look just official. Just to make it look bigger and bigger and bigger. That's such an interesting point, actually, because I, I know I'm guilty without question of sometimes finding some, a piece of gear I love and I'm like, ah, it just looks so... It just looks so unprofessional because it's so tiny. But yet that is such a good point. Even I think about even from the wedding side of it, like, yeah, the amount of people that are like, oh, are you a photographer? But the whole point of that you get so much more normal reactions from people because you, you're you not drawing attention to yourself from a standpoint of like, look at how massive that setup that he has is with him. That That's kind of really interesting Interesting point. Like, do do you find like so? You do obviously a lot of documentary stuff. So I'm assuming you follow a lot of people that do documentaries. Is that kind of pretty common these days in documentaries for them to be using much smaller rigs, or are or are there still big documentaries that are using really high end gear still? Yeah, there's a, there's obviously some varied approaches, and the way Netflix is going out making some of their documentaries, you can tell that they've got you know, these big uh, gimbal rigs and the person's probably got some exoskeleton support on mm-hmm. in those documentary contexts. And I think I think at that point, it becomes really helpful for there to be a director on, on set interacting mm-hmm. with the person to help pull the attention off the camera and the crew. Because I mean, sometimes when they're making just these bigger, high production value things, they've, I mean, they've got a crew and they've got a few people. But when it's just you and there's a lot of things you've got to be looking after with the camera the person that you're interacting with can tell that the camera is your main focus. And so it has been this transition, especially we've seen some really, really incredible outdoor films, uh, Banff Mountain Film Festival, Vancouver International Mountain Film Festival. The lineup for these festivals has just exploded with the access that people have now to these super small compact cameras that can make an image that in the right hands will look gorgeous on a big screen. And so we see so many outdoor films now that have this really intimate nature to them where, I mean, the person does just have a mirrorless camera. And yes, occasionally they might have a Red or an Alexa set up to do interviews or different things. But it's, I mean, it's super cool seeing the way that even even larger production companies have been utilizing these smaller cameras. And that, I mean, that's what brings us over into the GH5 land for me, that when that was announced, the reason why that was so exciting is the biggest disadvantage of a GH4 is you couldn't you couldn't do slow-mo that looked great at higher resolution. Right. I mean, even 96 frames per second in the GH4, I think it had a mode that could do that in VFR or something like that. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't a very great image. And right. it didn't have it didn't have 60 frames per second uh, in, in 4K. 
for those, I mean, 4K doesn't matter in a lot of regards, but in the in the world of trying to make money from the work that you're doing, or if you're hoping that someday someone might license at least one shot from you, it's just worth more to those people that want it in a higher resolution. And that became yep. a big reason for me to go, okay, how can I make sure? Because I was told by a distributor, if I make a 10-minute video series, if, if my series is like 10 episodes and each episode is 10 minutes, each episode would be worth thousands of dollars more if it was in 4K. And I kind of just, I ended up never be, being able to, I ended up never being able to sell that series, but that made me think, okay, so maybe I should be capturing in 4K right now. So that way, you know, if it does get picked up by distribution, it's worth more. It seems like a simple investment to jump up to a 4K camera. But when the GH5 was announced with 60 frames, 4K, that was like, okay, finally there's a camera yep. that I can use that if a moment interesting happens in the outdoor world, I can slow it down because I mean, and and I don't have to scale down to do it. Yeah, exactly. I can just be shooting right. in my normal. I shoot my documentaries, all the A roll and B roll footage, except for interviews in sixty frames, unless it's a low light situation. But that's just a choice I've made. So that way, if something inter- interesting happens, I've got more frames to work with. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, having a, a little package like the GH five with a viewfinder that is that much better. So I can focus on my Absolutely. lenses. Absolutely. Oh, I'm still just jazzed that we have a tool like this. And I'm so for every camera company just competing with each other so that way we get better and more. Yeah, that's what I love I about love it. it. Like, I, I love when everyone's like, what do you think they're going to do with the A7S III? I'm like, here's the good news. They have to have 4K60. They have to, like, yeah. because competition and competition drives down prices for us. Like, the fact that the GH5 is a $2,000 camera is unbelievable for the cost. And I don't care if you want to say that the autofocus is crap. Plain and simple, there's nothing in that price point that can compete right this second as we speak in March 2018. There is nothing that can compete, in my opinion, in, at $2,000. There are things that have come out. The A7, the A7 III is intriguing. It's interesting looking. I, I think the A7S III will be intriguing. But all those things, I mean, the GH5 to me is just such a great all-around camera. I mean, the stabilization on that camera with native Panasonic lenses is mind-blowing. Like the fact that you can do so like incredible, there are shots that I look back on that I'm like, how in the, why do I even have a gimbal? (laughs) Why do I have a glide cam? Why do I have anything else outside of my own hands? Because it's just incredible. So I have a GH5S now as well. Did you, did you have one now? I know you did a video on it. Did, do you have one? I actually, yeah. So I actually don't have one, but uh, a really close friend of mine who's a Panasonic ambassador up here in Canada has one. So I okay. borrowed it yeah, exactly. I saw your, um, and I'll link, I'll, I got to link that video in here in the show notes as well. But the video you did about the GH5S, just incredible, incredible image that you that you pulled from that. It just looked amazing. And I know most of the stuff you said you did handheld on that, yeah. which, you know, it doesn't have dual image stabilization or in-body at all. Right. And you still got, incredible stuff from it but what did what did you think because i know one of the questions that someone asked on twitter that they wanted to ask you was kind of what's your what was your take in the time that you did have it like the gh5s versus the gh5 yeah i I can't help but think of the irony of if the cameras had been released in reverse order i mean now that (laughs) now that panasonic has gotten everyone addicted on dual image stabilization for handheld work it's pretty clear that they had a hard time giving that up in what you would gain from a a GH5S. And there's a lot of internet weird stuff going on when it was announced that people was bashing it before they used it, which I I never really like hopping on that that bandwagon. I just like, just take the camera, go shoot something with it, see how it goes. And and, and for me, so, I mean, I shot so much with the GH4, so it brings you back to that, that GH4 body in the sense that, you know, it's not doing magic with your prime lenses anymore. Whereas the GH5, mm-hmm. because it's so light and it's got the dual image stabilization, you can put a 35 prime on there and it will get rid of some of that micro jitter. So going back, mm-hmm. going back a step away from that style of shooting, it just means that I just had to shoot like I was used to shooting previously with the GH4. And that's putting the camera on a monopod or just really mm-hmm. making sure that I'm doing good camera technique with holding the camera to my face. But what they've done in getting better low light performance off such a small sensor. I mean, so here's an example. When I when I worked on my web series, 
I, I used a Panasonic G7, which didn't have stabilization. I use that camera because it's a really, it's basically a identical image to a GH4, but it's shockingly cheap. So I bought one of those. Mm-hmm. And then I also had with me an A7S. And so I'd use the A7S for time lapses and for specialty low light stuff. And the hard part about this was the lenses that I was using on the G7, um, not all of them worked very great on the on the A7S. And so I just had this weird adapter situation going on and a lot of different lenses. And it worked for that, that context, but obviously I was mixing a 1080p image with a 4K image. And if I had a A7S Mark II, that obviously would have been helpful having the 4K. But now where the GH5S fits in is being able to do that exact same context where I'm using a GH5 for my low, for my daytime 4K60 handheld footage, but then the GH5S can then come in and do this low light party trick, still in the micro four thirds format. And I mean, a lot of people do adapt lenses onto micro four thirds, but there's such an advantage to having these lenses that are tiny. You can have a kit of five lenses mm-hmm. and cover your whole range. And have and them like these- basically in your pockets. <laughs> it's wild. And I've just, I've come to value that a lot. And yes, there's this trade-off where you, where you don't have the super big full frame. And so your depth of field is different, but the advantage of being able to have a two camera kit and five lenses in a little side bag, it's really exciting. Right. It's just such a good time for, for people that want to use the micro four thirds format. It's so exciting that there's now a really, really good low light option. And I mean, for the guys that shoot studio work, I think it's a big no-brainer as well because it's got time code. It's got this larger sensor, so you're getting more of an image off a lot of the lenses that you're already using on your... I mean, we saw a jump from GH5 from the GH4 where, oh, wow, in 4K, I suddenly get more use out of my 12 to 35. Well, you get even more use on the GH5S where the image circle actually covers more of the sensor. Uh, Caleb Pike did a great video explaining the the multi-aspect sensor, but... I think it's fantastic and and I I I would have I would have been okay if there's dual image stabilization in there but I I mean with every single camera there's compromises. It's a good point of if they would have came out with it in reverse the S first because you get I I never had a camera with dual image stabilization like the GH5. Well, I had the A7S2 that had the in-body yeah. stabilization but before that it was you know the Mark 3 and the Mark 2 and I never had a problem getting steady shots with a monopod and a gimbal, a glide cam. And then you get you get this camera, the GH5, that does it so well that then you just want to like complain and complain. No, you can't take it away. I've I've sold all my gimbals. I've sold all my tripods, my monopods. I don't have anything to keep this camera steady anymore. And it's just funny because you get so spoiled with it. I because it is so good. I've got this thing that I enjoy doing. I mean, when when new things get announced and videos get made on YouTube and the comment keyboard warriors come out just letting everyone know their, their great opinions, which get on them, whatever. <laughs> the keyboard warriors. I like, I like that. It's good. I like clicking through it because sometimes people have got these very long explanations and opinions and yeah. And I like going through and, and going, Oh, okay. Like what, what other stuff has this guy made? And I, I click yeah. through and I, <laughs> Oh wait, they, they haven't made or uploaded anything anything zero subscribers and zero videos and who and knows maybe expert maybe they put stuff on <laughs> vimeo maybe they maybe there's a one login for the other thing i'm just confused sometimes where people just get so enraged and, and impassioned by camera details when you on paper on paper when they just completely forget what yes. these things are even made to do in the first place just like go out and make yes. things ah it drives me just drives me nuts. Yeah, and that was a big thing about like the GH5S. They came out with it, and everyone's like, "Oh, they're they're gonna get crushed, and it doesn't have the autofocus still, and doesn't have this." And you're like, "Well, yeah, but there's also a lot of things that it does that no other camera also does. So like, all the other cameras that you just said are much better than it, have terrible battery life, and they overheat, and they only shoot for 29 minutes, 59 seconds. Like, there's so many different limitations that like there is no perfect camera, and that's why I try to tell people all the time because people will write, you know, you obviously get it probably more than anybody every other comment is what's the best camera for making youtube videos (laughs) and the whole point is there is not a perfect camera you have to decide the type of work that you are going to do and find the best camera for the situation 
right now. The best camera you can afford is probably might be the best one you can you can buy right now. But also you just have to kind of understand that like when you evolve in filmmaking at all, you start to realize, oh, I actually could use this and I could use this. And now I can see why that camera does this. And you just have to pick the camera that's right for you and not just ask, you know, it doesn't matter what left coast media uses if they're not doing the type of stuff that you were trying to do like there's a camera for a situation yeah it's such a good time to be a, a filmmaker it's pretty ridiculous i'm yes i mean i've it still got my is. dream camera that hasn't been made where it's got an internal neutral density filter <laughs> and can shoot oh, 4k it. yes that would be nice 4k 240 frames per second raw to an <laughs> sd card in a special compressed format you know i, I can still hope one day that will come Oh, it'll come, but then the problem is it's going to come, and there's going to be the 10 other cameras above it that you're like, now I've, why doesn't it have 8K? <laughs> it'll be, it's just one of those never ever evolving things that I think that we kind of just have to live with. Something else I want to talk about, and we'll kind of try to make this easier so I don't hold you for too long here, but you recently are a, should I say, Final Cut new, somewhat new Final <laughs> Cut adopter. Um, yes. I've been using Final Cut for a long time, um, way back in 7, and then when 10 came out, and I was one of those people when 10 came out that I actually wasn't like, this is complete crap. I was kind of, cool, this is finally something different. Like, I'm kind of getting tired of the old style. So I was okay with the new whole change. A lot of people obviously took years and still don't. You kind of are going through kind of really the early stages of kind of switching or is switching not necessarily the word are you kind of oh no i've switched still experiencing i've switched oh he's well, look at that he finished it before <laughs> i even finished so made the jump i want you to help people understand right. because i've done a lot of videos and discussion about this that there is just some magic sauce in the way that that program somehow works with a mac that just is mind-blowing what is your experience with final cut and why did you switch yeah, I think I think in the world of editing, survival of the fittest is is a really applicable term in the sense that, I mean, the best software to use in your applications, figure out what that will be and use it. And I think we've done, in a lot of ways, created somehow this culture and video video creating where there's more professional editing to use in others, and that's in a lot of ways harmed the pursuit of using the best tool for the work that we do. And somehow there's this culture that's existed where amateurs use this cheap and phony final cut update that sucks. And the pros use Avid and Premiere and Resolve. And, and I, I was in this camp where I looked down at final cut and I had, I had friends that started using it and loved it. And I mean, my journey to end up finally giving it a true shot, there's, some stages that went along with that, me being uh, on a machine that was a little older, so I needed I needed to utilize the advantages that Final Cut could do on a on a Mac machine. But I've tr I've tried to answer this question. I I reached the stage where I now see that Final Cut would be better for a lot of people, and that a lot of the people that I know edit in Premiere, I know their workflows could be improved in Final Cut. And I can't imagine what sentences I would need to say that would convince them <laughs> beyond beyond just trying to patiently go through all these things. But the problem is they don't I didn't approach it with an open mind when people tried to convince me previously. It ought, it's so sad that it had to come to a point of me just becoming so frustrated with Premiere that I literally just had to like if Premiere had kept working and just plodding along and not crashing like crazy and giving me lots of issues. Uh -huh there's a good chance I'd still be on Premiere. And that's a shame because mm -hmm. I think what I think what Apple's doing in Final Cut is really interesting as far as doing something that saves you a lot of time in how you manage your edit on a timeline. Let's just say both programs worked as fast and as efficiently in terms of they rendered as fast, they exported as fast. The programs themselves are obviously a night and day difference in how they do everything. Would you say you still prefer premiere minus the crashes or would you say that you're kind of adopting to like there are a lot of things that final cut does as you get used to them that you're kind of like wow the, the to me the big things are the organization system in premiere to me is just a disaster in comparison to how beautifully 
Final Cut organizes, like from from just import to organize to edit, is just so incredibly clean and amazing to me that it's one of the biggest things that I love. But would you say you kind of actually still prefer the Premiere style if you would take away, even though it's, you can't take it away because it's slower and it crashes more, but would you say that you kind of still lean more toward that? Yeah, so if performance, if performance was on par at this point, especially for, for YouTube stuff, I would for sure stick with Final Cut. Uh, especially the way that magnetic timeline, again, I think that gets looked at as an amateur thing, but the reality is there's certain head and tail edits I can do with my keyboard where mm-hmm. I can do I can do them while playing from the timeline, do a head and tail edit where I trim the end of a clip down yep. to the playhead. The best shortcut in the world. And it keeps playing from the part that I was originally just at, where if you try to do a, a cut like this in Premiere, yeah, you can head and tail edit in Premiere, but you've got to lock certain tracks to make sure your stuff doesn't go out of sync. And then you've also got to hit play again because every time you do a head and tail ripple cut, the playtime stops. So in Final Cut, yep. you if you've got a machine that can play back your material, you can just head and tail edit as you're playing and everything moves with it and you don't have to the way that your songs further down the timeline will stay in sync with those sections without having to lock tracks. I think I'm saving about three to four clicks per average one click that I was doing in Premiere now that I've caught up. And and the the one thing that's, I'm still wrapping my head around, so it's good hearing that you like the media organization. Wrapping my head around organizing media in Final Cut, that's been a little bit of a bumpy transition. And there's it's very different. <laughs> it's very, very different. different than what you're used to, for sure. <laughs> so that's been my biggest mental hurdle where I go, okay, I just want to see the folders of my cameras and my footage. Like, how, how do I import this so that in the events, in the keyword collections, like, I get that this is powerful, but I'm not believing it at every time. And, and that's where it all is. That's where, for anyone that uses Final Cut, I think a lot of people don't even realize, like, how deep you can get into their keywording and their favorites thing. But that's where it all lies. I think the whole idea of it's not, you know, you're used to bins and you're used to camera takes and different things in Premiere. Mm-hmm. In Final Cut, it's broken down pretty simply in events into keywords and then I favorite things inside of keywords to be able to instantly access them even faster. But it's all about just the keywording. And I think that because they do it so, because it's so smooth, because what I felt like with Premiere is I would, I would take tons and tons of clips and bins and have all these things that were organized super well in bins, but it would take me 10 clicks to get between the bins that I'd end up wanting to get back to something and then have to jump back 10 pages where in Final Cut, it kind of just always lives there on your left side of your screen, that it's so easy to just get things and use it that I found that when I'm actually cutting something, whether it's a vlog or something with way more footage like a wedding, when I have an idea of a shot I want to get to, I can get to it in a second with like one click where I felt like I would always be lost like wait where am i right now in premiere like i have to get back to the 30 second bin that i opened 10 minutes ago and i don't even know where it is like it's but it does take getting used to and i think that that's the problem too many people that look down on final cut just have never they've opened the application they've hit in out they've edited down and then the clip wouldn't let them move it to the right because they didn't understand how a position tool works. And then they'd be like, this is complete crap. They shut it down. And then they read in the forums, Final Cut is for amateurs. It's a complete trash program. I didn't write it in the forums, not- but that was, that was me. That was my experience. I downloaded it. Yeah. And that's how everyone is. The amount of people that I talk to that don't like Final Cut just because they hear it's it's more, you know, because they, they say it's like iMovie. Well, it's not. It's a really powerful program. And if you're on a Mac, I mean, it's that's, that's what it really comes down. I mean, if you're on a PC... Obviously, you don't have the Final Cut option, right. but I'm seeing more and more with people that have built $10,000 machines, and yet I'm using a $2,000 laptop that the optimization for Final Cut just is so incredible, and time is money. And if you're cutting a lot of stuff, it, there's just nothing that is faster, and it's I think that you're kind of starting to seeing that. So last thing I want to ask you about, because I'm super jealous of it, your iMac Pro that you got. My goodness, that machine. Yeah, I really, really want it. Is it as amazing as it seems? So far, it's been fantastic. I'm not going to return it yet. <laughs> yeah, I know you were kind of undecided because I think the title of your video was, is, the, is it worth $10,000 or whatever it was? Yeah, the Canadian price is a touch more expensive, but uh, I went with the 10 core, uh, the 64 gigs of RAM and the, the best graphics card with two ter- terabytes of SSD. 
And have you tried editing in Premiere with the iMac Pro? How it's is it? It's brilliant. It's super powerful with Premiere. It, it's it's been crashing a lot less. I I honestly have not edited tons in Premiere since getting it, which is a little surprising yeah, to me. No need, no need. And so I I probably <laughs> didn't need. Now I'm realizing maybe I didn't need to get as beefy of as a machine, especially for where I'm at currently for Final Cut. For Final Cut, but the one of the yeah. reasons is because it it is so powerful with some of the red media, and I wanted a workstation right. that for the next three to five years. I knew could handle up to 8K red footage. Yeah, because that's where it really gets the difference. Everything these days, any of the new MacBook Pros, iMacs can handle 4K 8-bit. Yeah. In 10-bit, I have to I have to create proxies, right. but I can do 4K 8-bit no problem at all. I'm sure I'm sure you can do 10-bit without any sort of proxies on iMac Pro, that's right? Brilliant. Yeah, that's just, just, there's so many amazing things. It's literally the only reason I don't shoot I don't shoot in 10-bit on a regular everyday project just because of that reason, but like for vlogs and stuff, but I shoot 10 bit for everything else, but then I got a proxy. 8K in the 8K timeline, full resolution playback in Final Cut. It's that is just ridiculous. Well, that's amazing. So I'm going to keep it. (laughs) Yeah. It was a, it's the biggest investment I've made. I've used, I've used Hackintosh rigs. It's, it's funny. You make videos about the stuff you try to explain your perspective on it and the commenters always come in and it seems like they don't even watch the video and and they don't allow you to if you've spent that much on an apple product they they just assume that you're nuts uh which fair enough it's unbelievable the the app the the people (laughs) as bad as they call they say that people are apple fanboys the people that are not apple people are just as bad just on the other side but no i really appreciate you taking some time this was kind of really in informational and just i think it's just a cool uh thing to constantly hear from more and more filmmakers that are in on the steps to the journey that so many people want to be on what's kind of one one main thing that you've kind of realized over these last maybe couple years of doing it or maybe really recently that like man had i had i known that that might have really helped me early on in my in my journey yeah i it, it for me it comes back to embracing limitations and just harnessing that and running with it. So many of the early projects I tried to do, my intentions were were in such a good place. I was, I was coming from such a uh, a well-meaning place of making videos that would make a difference, but the scope of them was so b- far beyond what I was capable of actually making. I wanted to make these big documentaries about all these humanitarian issues that were so massive, and I wanted to use video to change the world. And in reality, what I needed to be doing was setting limitations for a project where it was actually completable and then doing it. Hmm. I just had to go, okay, in one week, I'm going to make a thing and I'm going to finish the thing and I'm going to see how it went. That's what I had so many big projects that crash and burned. I think I'm, I think there's about five or six big documentaries I tried to do that I even started shooting and I did all these planning for that never like they're nothing. And it's, Ironic mm-hmm. looking back now, if I had the skills that I had now applying to those projects that I had in my head, I wouldn't even have gone about them in that way to begin with. I should have been right. focusing on what's, I hear so many people are like, yeah, I'm going to go out and make a feature film. I'm like, well, have you, have you made a short film? <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's yep. where it starts. No, and that's, I think that's a great point. I think that that's a great takeaway for people is especially when you're starting out, there is no project too small. There is no, no shoot too unimportant. Like when you start, you need to shoot as much. If you need to daily vlog, I don't care what it is. You need to shoot and edit as much as possible and do a ton of things you don't like to really understand what you actually do like. But you just need to shoot. You need experience on all sides, f- filming, editing, storytelling, every aspect. And then think about the feature film. I love that. Yeah, don't shoot a feature film before you've ever shot a one-minute film. Like you might want to start Might want to start there as kind of the, <laughs> the starting point. The whole point is just, just make something and then decide from there. Well, Levi, I really appreciate you taking some time. I will put links to everything down below instead of you having to just spout out everything that you do. Um, make sure that people can check it out. If you've never checked out his stuff, I highly, highly recommend it. You a great filmmaker, great storyteller, and just really, really good at what you do. And I really appreciate your attitudes on your vlogs and just your your willingness to help people out kind of in their journey as well. So thanks for taking time on your kind of birthday week back. And I hope you hope you feel better. Hope you are uh, getting ready for spring. Hopefully that time comes soon for us all because I'm I'm over this winter thing. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Scott. It's a blast. 
So once again, a special thank you to Levi Allen for taking some time to be on the podcast. I hope you found this as valuable and informative as I did. As always, I always appreciate you reaching out to me on Twitter at Scott W. McKenna. Tell me what you think. Make sure you also get in touch with and connect with Levi on all his social media channels. Tell him thanks for being on the podcast. And let me know what you got out of this. Let me know your favorite part. Let me know the thing that might have been not what you expected that might have changed your thought process a little bit. I find these conversations with different filmmakers and different people on their journey just uh, inspiring in so many different ways to look at things differently at times and to also kind of look back on the past in a different way and whatever it is. I just I'd like to hear how it's impacted you. So that's why I create these podcasts. That's why I create the YouTube content. And that's what I'd like to hear from you. So hope to hear from you at Scott W. McKenna on Twitter. Until next time, uh, go film something. That's not usually how I ended it all, but that'll work.